Asymmetrical Haircuts Justice Update with Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. All rise. Hi, welcome to Asymmetrical Haircuts. This episode has been uh, recorded in cooperation with JusticeInfo.net. Uh, I'm Stephanie van den Berg and I'm here with my co-host Janet Anderson. Hi, Janet. Hi, Stephanie. Well, it's been another busy month at the International Criminal Court with a big trial starting, hasn't it? Yeah, it's the first trial about atrocities in Darfur, which is already nearly 20 years ago uh, when the region became an infamous byword for human rights abuses. The then Sudanese authorities mobilized mostly Arab militias known as the Janjaweed, and thanks to the prosecutor Karim Khan, in his opening statement, we now know that that stands for devils on horsebacks, to crush a mostly non-Arab rebellion. A Washington and a lot of activists called it a genocide. And we should mention that the Darfur situation is actually part of the ICC's portfolio um, because there used to be a time quite a long time ago when the United Nations Security Council members sort of cooperated. And one thing that they did at the time was actually refer what was happening in Sudan to The Hague, even though Sudan is not a member of The Hague. And this is one of those things that uh, Karim Khan, when he became uh, prosecutor of the ICC, said he really wanted to prioritize the cases that were referred by the UN Security Council. So this is also a, a big deal for him. And there was plenty of activity at the court. I caught up with one of the FIDH delegation. He was here in The Hague, been brought over by the League of Human Rights, FIDH, and the Sudanese human rights lawyer Mossad Mohamed Ali of the African Centre for Justice and Peace Studies. And he told me that survivors were really waiting for justice. This could actually give uh, some hope, you know, that even if we have been waiting for years, uh, one day we could see, you know, uh, the justice could be done or uh, seen. So maybe it's early to say, you know, what's going to happen because it's difficult, you know, to predict, especially if it's law, because uh, law is law and it doesn't have like predictions because it's facts, evidence, and they would be like judgment. So we'll wait to see, for example, the witness, the evidence that will be provided by the Office of the Persecutor, and the court will decide accordingly. Let's dive in to some of the detail of what's been happening in the court and get some context as well. We're lucky that we've been able to be joined by Emma Di Napoli from the NGO Redress. Hi, Emma. Hi, Janet. How are you? Fine. Great to see you here. We'll come back to you in a minute to help us paint the picture of what's happening now and what this trial really means. So should we kick off, Stephanie, with who's who? Yes, the man on trial is a suspected former Janjaweed militia leader. His name is Ali Mohammed Ali Abdal Rahman. He faces 31 counts of war crimes and crimes against humanity, including persecution, murder, rape and torture. How did he plead? He pleaded not guilty and we'll have uh, here is a clip of him telling you that for himself. Not a single one. I reject all of these charges. I am innocent of all of these charges. I, I am not accused of any of these charges. Yes, yes thank you, Mr. Al-Rahman. You can sit down again. So what in more detail is the prosecution case against him? Prosecutors accuse Abdal Rahman, who is in his 70s. He's like 72 or 73, depending on, on what you look at. And they say he's also known as Ali Kushaib. And Ali Kushaib is a senior commander of basically in charge of thousands of pro-government Janjaweed fighters during the 2003-2004 
part of the Darfur conflict was really at the height of the conflict. And here we have Karim Khan explaining to the court who the prosecution say he is. Mr. Abdurrahman, the prosecution says, is one of the key senior Janjaweed militia leaders that the government of Sudan relied upon heavily, that they worked with closely. He was, the prosecution say, a willing and knowing participant in crimes. And indeed, you'll see, not by way of rhetoric, but from the actions and the evidence that would be led, you will see that he took pride in the power that he thought he exerted. Great to hear Khan in uh, full flow there. Um, but how did he come across to you, Steph, because you've seen prosecutors come and go? I, I think this is the first opening of a major trial for him since he's taken over. I mean, other trials have started, but he hasn't been kind of the person, you know, fronting it. He sounded very much the British barrister that we know him to be. There was a lot of nice uh, flourishes in language. I thought he was a bit more hesitant, but he seemed to be also more speaking off the cuff. When Suda, usually when she had these opening statements, she really, I think, studied on the opening statement and it came out as a kind of one piece. And he had more kind of flourishes and little additions that he made. You could really see that he's very used to walking around in the courtroom and, and stating his case. And also making it personal, I felt. He talked about the Ramadan, the Muslim holy month, that this was a kind of iftar for um, a breaking of the fast for the search for accountability. So he's really trying to connect with the victims and the people looking at this trial, I felt. And can you just provide a bit more detail on what the prosecution case is? What, what, what were some of the main elements that we should know? The prosecution says that Abd al-Rahman led militias in attacks on several towns and villages, and he has been specifically implicated in uh, the murder of more than 130 people and forcing tens of thousands of mainly ethnic four civilians from their home. He, as we had said, denies the charges. He says also that he's not Ali Kushaib, that he's, this is, he's a, a victim of mistaken identity. And his lawyers have earlier claimed that he's not educated enough to understand that any orders he carried out uh, would result in war crimes or would con constitute war crimes. Let's hear a clip of uh, Kareem Khan here uh, countering that claim. It's a case where there is a multiplicity of evidence from different sources that the accused killed, he ordered, he encouraged a full range of crimes, the full range of crimes that are before your honours. He participated and he ordered. It seems his defence is, it's not me. And when you uh, hear in a moment, my learned friend, uh, Julian Nichols, will say, you'll hear some additional arguments that will be presented in the course of the trial. Additional evidence will be foreshadowed that will be led. And your honours will determine whether or not that is uh, a, a, a true position uh, or an insult uh, to the truth. Witness after witness saw him, heard him, recognised him. Witness after witness knew Mr. Abdurrahman from before. Uh, this is, the prosecution say, a strong case. So, Emma, thanks for uh, sitting through uh, while we ran through the background. Why don't you help to explain to us how this guy actually ended up in court? How did, how did he get caught to be here in The Hague? Sure. So as you 
may know former President Omar al-Bashir, who is himself wanted by the ICC on counts of war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide, was ousted from office after months of democratic protests in April of 2019. Subsequently, there was some discussion of prosecution of several high-profile leaders of atrocities in Darfur, including Kusheyev. And as you can see in prosecution filings, it appeared that the attorney general at the time personally confirmed that um, his office was seeking Kusheyev's arrest and subsequently fled into the Central African Republic, where he then voluntarily surrendered himself to ICC custody. And that was in June of 2020. And just maybe interesting to note that the crimes he was potentially charged with in Sudan would have or could have carried the death penalty. It, it's possible that he thought he'd be either able to escape custody um, or the attention of Central African Republic authorities, or that he felt he may be safer in The Hague. He also uh, made the claim that he, uh, of course, he voluntarily surrendered to the ICC, which, um, for example, the prosecution says shows that he is Ali Kushaib because you know, the arrest warrant was for this man, alias Ali Kushaib, and he never said he wasn't. He only started saying that when he came to The Hague. There is a question of why would you turn yourself in after 13 years? But as you say, maybe uh, possibility of Sudan prosecution pushed him to do it. But I, I wonder now there's been a new change of power again in Sudan. Would the new government also have pushed this? Or is it in his interest now to kind of back off from ICC and, and try to go back to Sudan because it's his former allies are, are back in power? I think there are two things in that question. The first is that it was interesting to see or to listen to his statement in court on Wednesday. He made an unsworn statement in which he said that he came to the ICC of his own free will to correct misleading falsehoods attributed to him. Um, which I think runs a little bit counter to the idea that he isn't Ali Kusheyev, but um, you know he did make that statement in court. Um, we saw it in the public gallery, and it was quite interesting. Um, in terms of the dynamics in Sudan now, as you've noted, there was a coup in October 2021, and since then there has been a real kind of revitalization of the National Congress Party, Bashir's former party. And the military is squarely in control now, despite some kind of ongoing mediations with various uh, international bodies, you know, the UN, as well as the African Union. And I would say that the public impression and my own impression is that the military authorities, of course, have no incentive really to cooperate with the ICC. There had been some discussion prior to the coup of the ha final handing over of Bashir and others believed to be in Sudanese custody to the ICC. I don't expect that to happen. And so I guess on some level, there would be an incentive, of course, for Kusheb to back off from the ICC. But that, as a practical matter, can't happen now that the trial has begun. And then very practical question, why are we seeing, you know, who isn't in court? Why are we seeing Kusheb and who else would we rather have seen in court? One of the things that, that I also saw a human rights activists say on Twitter is that uh, this is a trial that doesn't bring genocide charges and there are a lot of uh, several people in, in the Darfur situation who have arrest warrants for potential genocide charges. So this is not the kind of the full case that we're seeing. So there are still four outstanding arrest warrants. Um, one is Ahmed Haroun, the former Minister of State for the Interior. His case was originally joined to Kushayev's case, but once... Kushayev had voluntarily surrendered himself to the ICC. Those cases were severed because, you know, to protect Arun's 
right to stay in trial. The other outstanding warrants are against the former defense minister, Abdul Rahim Mohammed Hussein, Abdullah Banda Abkir, commander within the rebel justice and equality movement. And then, of course, Omar al-Bashir, the former president and the first sitting head of government to be indicted by the ICC, as well as the first person charged with the crime of genocide at the ICC. Banda Abakir is still on the run. His whereabouts are unknown, but Harun Hussein and Bashir are believed to be in Sudanese custody. Of course, Bashir has been um, appearing in court somewhat regularly in Sudan on corruption charges, although those proceedings since the coup have now um, slowed considerably. And so, of course, you know, I think all of our Sudanese partners feel that justice can't really be achieved in Sudan until all of those men are surrendered to the ICC, but particularly Bashir, who whose prosecution will carry such significance and importance to Sudanese people. I'm glad that we managed to get back on the record the genocide charges related to the, the Darfur situation, because maybe we kind of... Uh, played that down right at the beginning uh, of the podcast by just making reference to what's what's agreed internationally i mean this is this is what actually makes it such a a huge situation at the icc that that it it is about alleged genocide you've already said uh, emma that uh, you don't see it really likely with the current government that there's going to be cooperation fully with the icc is there any, you know, chinks of light on that? Is there anything you can point to to say, you know, maybe there's there's some way through? I mean, what, what's your, your assessment as analyst of what might happen? Yeah, it's a really important question. You know, in terms of cooperation, there have been two memorandum of understanding signed by the transitional government, but these were signed prior to the coup. So there's one signed in February of 2021, and then a subsequent agreement signed in August of 2021, which um, the second one was particularly notable because it was meant to deepen the Sudanese authorities' cooperation with the ICC, including ensuring that investigators were given full access to the necessary documentation and to Darfur and concerned all of the cases, not just um, the Kishayev case. So that was very promising. And at the same time, civilian members of the then transitional government said that they would transfer Bashir and others to the ICC. But it's important to note that the military never made this promise and the transitional government at the time was, was jointly controlled by civilians and the military, but the military retained final kind of executive authority over any such decisions. And so given that context, I think, and now given the current situation with the military in control with only a few civilian kind of figureheads in the government, I think it would be very surprising if the military made the decision to transfer Bashir Haroun Hussein. That's not to say that it's impossible, I, you know, with increased international pressure on the issue as a kind of benchmark for the resumption of international aid, which is very important to the military, given the deteriorating economic situation, it is possible, but it seems unlikely. That being said, the ICC has been granted access to Sudan even since the coup. The Office of the Prosecutor has made several public trips to the country since October. I understand that some other sections within the ICC also do intend travel. Um, which is a promising sign, though the difficult security situation in Darfur, I think, is a real challenge, um, really just from a kind of matter of practicality more than anything. Let's get back to the trial itself. I was wondering also from uh, people who were observing uh, it, I wanted to ask them, 
for people in Darfur, what do they actually want to see from from this trial? So I caught up also part of the FIDH delegation uh, with Ahmed al-Zubair from the Sudan Human Rights Monitor, and I asked him what people were looking for. Because he's a militia leader, maybe have like 200, 500 armed men with him. You but want to know where he got his, yeah, his uh, a, orders from? Who yeah, told him what to yes. do? Order, planning, funding, financing, logistical support, all this kind of stuff. So if he managed to speak out about these issues, you know, X and Y and Z and this, giving me money, giving me orders, giving me planning, they help me with their, you know, their transportation and all that kind of stuff. He has nothing to lose anyway, he could do that. So Ahmed says there that the real interest would be in who actually gave the orders and whether you could kind of show the linkage evidence uh, back up to the top, asking the detainee, the accused, saying he's got nothing to lose. He could just say it anyway. But I suspect that's not the defence strategy. No, it seems to be uh, the defence strategy seems to be I'm not the guy you're looking for, really. When after the the first day of this trial, there's, of course, internationally a lot going on with the Ukraine conflict. But Khan gave a press conference specifically where he also stressed the significance of the case and that uh, Darfur is not forgotten after 20 years. And that the fact that a trial is actually being uh, put on can be a lesson for for those current situations. And here we have some wonderful uh, Khan. How do you call that? Similes? No. Aphorisms. Um, um, anyway, let's listen to it. some wonderful flowery Khan language. Uh, what he likens the long road to justice to the march for justice, the march for accountability, is not a you know a well tarmacked road. It's uh, not a hay bicycle path. It, it, it is uh, uh, strewn with uh, boulders, and one can stumble and slip, and it's uh, it can be perilous uh, for many for many. Uh, wish to traverse it. I think at the end, the real stroke of optimism is that despite obstacles, you know, the, the badly laid road, and obstacles that have been placed, and against quite some odds, and despite some effort in some quarters, this day has come. And uh, I believe that in some refugee camps today, I haven't seen the pictures yet, I don't know if uh, Julian or Dehiro has seen that there's large monitors and some of our uh, brothers and sisters that are in Darfur, uh, people in those camps that maybe haven't left them since uh, the events of uh, 2003, 2004. Uh, I can imagine them glued to their TV and it matters to them in terms of vindicating that their life matters. When you've been told, as you've seen on video clips today, that uh, because of ethnicity, uh, whether you're fur or masculine or because of your colour, because of your tribe, you're viewed as not worthy of anything to be trodden on or stamped upon or disregarded. Um, I think it's very important that they can see that the world is still interested in that, that we do care, that we've not forgotten, that we do don't have the we don't have the attention span of a you know a gnat. Well, one of the rocks and obstacles, I mean, just referring back to this bigger picture, is whether there is evidence showing who gave orders, whether there is linkage evidence. Emma, let's come back to you. Do we know what's in the office of the prosecutor's toolbox in that sense? Do we know what evidence they, they could possibly bring to show who who was responsible? 
It's a fabulous question. Um, and I do think it's really important to note that the Couchet case is not just about Couchet, but it's about several others. You know, listening to the first couple days of hearings, the trial, I was impressed with the kind of documentation that the prosecutor's office seems to have been able to gather. So, um, you know, of course, I'm, I'm only privy to what they've made public, but they did seem to have a copy of the official 2004 National Security Plan, which is a, a top secret document that extends security plans across the entirety of the country. Um, and it followed the 2003 emergency plan that was implemented just in Darfur after the August 2003 airport attack in El Fasher that kicked off the real counterinsurgency operation. And that document was sent directly to Bashir and to the defense minister. And so it does seem as though there will be some linkage between Kusheb's case and the others. And the other interesting thing that came out from the prosecution's opening statement was mention of witnesses who had seen Kusheb speaking on a satellite phone directly with Haroon. And the prosecution seems to have evidence of Kusheb's meeting with Haroon in several high-level meetings where Haroon is alleged to have provided Kusheb with boxes, presumably full of money and or weapons. So from that perspective, I think the prosecution does seem to have some linkage evidence. But, you know, I can't really say what they have on Bashir, for example, or some of the others. At that press conference that Khan gave after after the opening of the trial, there were some journalists also who asked about, you know, how they built the case uh, because they really couldn't visit uh, Darfur at the time. And they were being quite sketchy about it. And they didn't want to give any details, but they basically, uh, because there were questions from journalists, are you relying on digital evidence like satellite photographs or this and that? And they kind of basically said, no, we really did it the, the old-fashioned way, and we talked to lots and lots of witnesses. So, Insider witnesses? He didn't say because he didn't want to give away the case. So they were very sketchy about it, but it seemed, uh, they said it was largely built on, on witness testimony. And, and from what you're saying, it seems that some of that probably is insider witnesses, which they would need to get that all-important linkage evidence. Now, at the press conference also, as we said before, Khan uh, stressed that Darfur is not forgotten, but it's really off the front pages at the moment. And uh, when I started preparing for this trial, I saw in our Reuters copy from my colleagues uh, in Sudan also that there's been an upsurge in intercommunal violence in Darfur. Do you know what's going on uh, on the ground at the moment, Emma? Yeah. So if if you forgive me for the brief history lesson, I think it may be useful. Um, just generally, yes, there has been an upsurge in violence. So episodic clashes between militiamen and farmers have escalated and thousands of people have since been displaced from their homes, either um, internally in Sudan um, or across Sudan's borders to Chad. And there are a couple of things that are at play. And I think the first one is really historic and related to the Kashab case. Um, and so if you were listening to the first expert witness, joint prosecution defense witness, Alex Duvall, he testified on the issues of land use and allocation, which drove much of the conflict in Darfur in the early 2000s and continued to do so because none of those issues have really been resolved. And he rightly pointed out that I think there are really three kinds of intercommunal conflict in Darfur. So you have arguments about tribal boundaries in terms of um, lands that have been allocated to different tribes, but where those boundaries are really contested and the result of those contests is armed conflict. 
Then there are also cases where tribes don't have historically recognized claims to land, and those are especially Arab pastoralist communities. And so then you have the third kind of conflict is contests over migratory routes for pastoralists, when you have farmers who may have blocked land or prevented access to water, and that problem is exacerbated by climate change. And so there are some kinds of traditional conflict mediation for those disputes, but where armed conflicts arose, the government under Bashir often supported the Arab pastoralist communities against non-Arab farming communities. The result of all of that, and this is true, you know, from 2003, this, this is the dynamic of the conflict then, and now you had armed militias empowered by the government, which controlled large swaths of land. The fall of the Bashir regime meant that many of those displaced by decades of conflict in Darfur hoped that they'd be able to return to their traditional land. And so you had the Juba Peace Agreement signed in October of 2020, which really did attempt to resolve some questions about land rights. But it was a very flawed document, and it was signed without real democratic consensus or representation. And the reaction to the agreement, particularly by predominantly Arab communities, concerned that they'd be on the losing side of any political reorganization, has been one of violent resistance. And so that's been true since the agreement was signed in October 2020, but the coup in October has really exacerbated that. So it complicated the implementation of the JPA, of the Juba Peace Agreement, because the military, even pre-coup, had really shown no real willingness to support peace processes. And fighting has now really begun between some of the signatories to that agreement, including parties to the conflict in 2003 and 2004, and militias allied with rapid support forces soldiers who are linked to Hameti, um, one of the alleged former Janjaweed commanders and the second in charge of the government now. It does sound very complicated. I mean, as in there is a lot going on. And I, I really appreciate the, the history lesson to kind of pull all of these elements together. But I'm wondering then, does the stuff that is being dealt with in this trial, does it feel like it's ancient history or does it feel very relevant? Yeah, I think it's actually precisely the opposite, that it feels like present day history. Um, And sadly, all of those underlying conflict dynamics are really almost exactly the same. So you have this kind of governance vacuum, which has left the security situation in Darfur to deteriorate. And then the second complicating factor was that the joint UN-AU peacekeeping mission, which was very relatively effective in keeping conflict at a low level, although ongoing, fully withdrew from Darfur in mid-2021, following pressure from particularly the military components of the transitional government. So there's no one working to maintain peace in Darfur, which was really essential. And you'll hear many of our Sudanese partners have said that the withdrawal of UNAMID has made a, a really tangible difference in the security situation. And so I think I think it, the case is actually, the Kushab case is really important in shedding light on, it's, it's setting out the historic context, which does, I think, provide kind of a roadmap, at least, for where the situation therefore may go without real international attention, which is desperately needed at this point. Well, thank you so much for, for explaining that and also how it links into the, the history of it. We always end the podcast with asking you our asymmetrical haircuts questions. And the first one is, um, what didn't we ask you that we should have asked you about this? What, what nugget did we miss that you really want to put the spotlight on? I think there are there are two things. The first would be that the linkage evidence in this case will be interesting. 
in terms of those who are already wanted by the ICC. But I think one thing that people are hoping for is that Kusheya will provide direct evidence of some of the coup leaders' involvement in atrocities in Darfur. So that would be a man named Hameti, um, Al-Burhan, who's the head of the Sudanese Armed Forces, and other members of the coup government's involvement. And so it was very interesting to hear Kusheb in his unsworn statement reference them directly. He referenced Hameti, Burhan, Kabashi, and Alata and said, I hope that you prioritize the Sudanese people and run elections in 2023 successfully. And so any kind of evidence that Kusheb does provide or that, you know, not Kusheb directly, but witnesses provide um, from the prosecution could put pressure on the coup leaders and make it more difficult for them to negotiate some kind of new political agreement with nominally civilian groups. You said two two things. Are you going to try and slip something else in? So the other thing that I was just going to mention was just what could be expected moving forward. So the prosecution has begun its case and the defense will not present its opening statement until after the prosecution's full case. And they're expected to call more than 125 witnesses. So the, they've got quite a long time to go. I think there's a lot of interest in seeing what the defense will argue, but we'll have to wait for quite a while until then. And our second uh, asymmetrical haircuts question at the moment, because we swap them around occasionally, is do you have a favourite trial that you would like to uh, tell us anything about? Is it cheeky to say that this is my favourite trial? <laughs> you know, we every dress have worked for so long, decades now, on accountability and the impunity gap in Sudan. And it's really encouraging to see this case moving forward, whether or not Kusheb is the biggest fish in the, the pond or the sea. It is, as Con, Prosecutor Khan said, really a momentous day for victims. And um, so I'm really pleased to see this and I'm, and I'm going to be watching very closely. The other thing we always ask uh, the people we interview is, uh, are you watching, reading, listening to something that you can recommend to our listeners? doesn't have to be international law, but of course we are all uh, the law geeks over here, so we like that. But we also like to hear what you do to get away from Darfur atrocities. The book that I told everyone about and continue to do so is called The Outlaw Ocean. It's fascinating, long read uh, or, or narrative nonfiction on issues in the high seas, so some sovereignty issues, but then um, high-speed chases at sea, of, you know, concerning poachers and trafficking on the high seas. I, it sounds a bit niche, but it is really a page turner. Um, and there was a point where I considered trying to get a spot on a boat on the high seas, even though I'm prone to seasickness, because it's really so gripping. So I highly recommend it, the Outlaw Ocean. Sounds great. Thank you so much for your time, Emma. And we'll be watching the trial along with you. And hope to get you back on when there is a big development in the trial. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. It is published in partnership with justiceinfo.net. You can find show notes and additional blogs on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in the Hague Humanity Hub home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com and the show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.